history as we're defining it is, is something that was once hidden but is now revealed in Christ. So when you come across this word mystery in the New Testament, this is what you can think. It's something that for people, they didn't, it wasn't blatantly obvious to people until Jesus. And then on this side of Jesus, all of a sudden we can look back and go, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. So what we're going to do this morning before we really get into things uh, is, is kind of look at two things that you didn't think would go together, but actually do. So if there's anything, so what, what, I, what I'm going to do is just ask you to think for a second about two things that should not go together, but somehow do, and it works beautifully and seamlessly. And then I'm going to ask you to share some of those with me, if you would, okay? But first, as we're talking about mystery, we're talking about this idea that it's something once hidden, but now revealed. I just, it made me think of a story. So when I was in secondary school, there was... Um, a class trip that a bunch of girls in my class took. And as they were driving, they had this idea. It was a long trip, like an hour and a half, because I'm from the middle of nowhere. So it was an hour and a half to anywhere. And so they were coming an hour and a half back home, and they got this grand idea. They said, oh, do you know what would be really funny? We should moon the next car that comes by. Right? And so they decided to reveal a mystery to the car uh, that was coming. <laughs> And when they revealed the mystery to the car that was driving past, they realized there was actually a whole other mystery inside the mystery. And that mystery that then was all of a sudden revealed was that they had just mooned a car that was actually a police car that was unmarked. <clears throat> so then the bus driver received a mystery <laughs> that was now revealed as he got pulled over and found out what had been going on in the back of his bus, and now he was being given a ticket. And uh, so it's a mystery that is now revealed. It's something that wasn't obvious before that now is obvious, right? So... so they became blatantly aware that there was a police officer. It had been hidden before, but now it's obvious. And looking back, they probably could have seen all the signs that said, oh, look, a government license plate. Oh, look, all of these things. Like, okay, you know, they should have known better. It was dumb, but anyway, and that was a really stupid example. It was just to buy me some time to hopefully allow you to have a minute to think, what are, some, what are two things that you didn't think would go together but actually do? Mark, yeah. Chili and chocolate. Oh, yeah. Like, sorry, I was thinking chili con carne. Yeah, I was like, maybe. I don't know. I've never tried it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Chili and chocolate. That's one you find. You can you end up paying three euro for a bar of that. Like, yeah, yeah. Chili and chocolate. Okay. Anybody else can think of anything? Yes. That's true. Yes. Fries and ice cream. Chips and ice cream. If you haven't tried that, your eyes have not been opened. Anybody else think of anything? As a good American, I feel like I have to say peanut butter and chocolate. Like, that's one thing that for Irish people, like, it's a mystery to you guys, but just trust me, once it's revealed, like, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. Yes, like Reese's, yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, come on. Okay. Uh, what? See, I feel like, yeah, most of the examples I could think of, too, were food. And, like, I was wondering, like, am I just hungry? Or is like, you know. But it's true. Like, especially, too, even as I was, like, thinking about it, a lot of them had to do with chocolate. Like, things paired with chocolate. Like, sea salt and chocolate. Like, you wouldn't think maybe wouldn't that, I don't know, at first. But it's wonderful. I don't know. So, yeah. So, this morning, as we're looking at this idea of mystery. Last week, like I said, Luke took the idea of mystery. And he said that, 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 
Paul, what Paul is talking about, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 1 that Luke talked about last week, is that, that this idea that heaven and earth are coming together. Two things that probably to us seem like they wouldn't go together real well, right? We have this idea that like, you know, when I die, somehow I skip over into heaven and, and heaven and earth, they don't meet. It's just like heaven is the place I go where I die. Earth is the place I'm stuck on right now. And hopefully someday I'll escape to the other. But what the Bible seems to tell us is actually that there's this idea of a meeting of heaven and earth that happens in Christ. And it's a mystery that's now revealed. And so Paul then, as he continues on in the letter, we get to Ephesians chapter 3, and he gets a bit more specific. And he's going to tell us that, that the mystery that is revealed is further revealed as this, that the Jews and the Gentiles are now united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you're confused about this, I would venture a guess that most of us are Gentiles. Okay, so if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's just kind of the way it works. All right, so in the ancient world, that's the way Jews saw things. If you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile, right? Because the Jews saw themselves as God's chosen people, the people that were to be a light to the nations, to show the world what God was like. They were a special people set apart. And if you weren't a Jew, then you were a Gentile. And so the mystery that Paul tells us that is now revealed in the person and the work of Jesus is that these people now can get along with each other, that they're all chosen by God, that they're all a part of God's chosen people. And so we have this, this mystery of unity. And, and from a purely human perspective, I think this is impossible. This picture that like everybody can just get along with each other, right? That's like impossible, I mean, our world is not exactly becoming a, a nicer place, a kinder place. I mean, all you have to do is spend five minutes on Twitter. I, I would assume Instagram's the same. I'm getting too old for that. I just, well, actually, it's just I don't take pictures. Um, but like, do you know what I mean? Like social media and everything is not making people kinder, nicer, more generous, thoughtful people. Instead, we're just like, I don't know. Somehow in history, we thought we could educate people into being nicer and kinder to each other. And that's just not the reality, is it? In fact, it seems like things are just getting worse, and maybe they're actually not getting worse. Maybe it's always been the same. I don't know. But what I know is this idea that we can educate people into being nice, kind people hasn't worked. And Paul here <laughs> tells us, yeah, that, that's because that's not what works. What actually works in a way that nothing else works is Jesus. It's Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you want to turn, like I said, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to start. Because I, I'm big on the idea that we need context. And as Paul gets into Ephesians chapter 3, man, if you haven't looked at Ephesians chapter 2, you could end up being a bit confused as to exactly what Paul is getting at. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we don't have to read the whole chapter. We can start at verse 11, though I would encourage you to read the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. It's amazing. In fact, just go home today and read the entire book of Ephesians. It'll take you like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, even that. It's not that much time. You can do it. It'll be all right. Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. All right. And we're just going to read through verse 13. And it's because, again, I want us to see, to try and see, begin to see the bigger picture. All right. So we're reading out of the New Living Translation. If you have another translation, that's great. Um, but that's what, we, that's what we use on Sunday mornings here. So um, Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. 
You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises of God, or, sorry, the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now, (coughs) excuse me, by his Holy Spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessing because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasure available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan. (coughs) I'm sorry. This mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Jeez, hopefully we keep power this morning. My goodness, that is rare. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, my goodness, sorry. Um, so yeah, 
I know we don't normally, probably it's not a usual thing in church to read that huge chunk of the Bible. But I hope, like I said, that it gives us a bit of context to understand what Paul is laying out here, the good news that he is laying out. And what you're going to see is this actually is a huge theme throughout Paul. In all of his letters, if you, go, if you go to what Paul wrote in Romans, you go to what Paul writes in Galatians, you look at what Paul writes in Ephesians, often the theme is this, unity, that it is possible in Christ for people who wouldn't otherwise get along to get along. And that was a difficult thing. You have to understand, put your mind, you know, put yourself in the place of somebody who, who has been probably, you know, made fun of or... or at the, you know, at the very least made fun of, possibly persecuted as a Jew for their faith in the one God, the one true and living God. And now all of a sudden they're being told, you need to get along with these people. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? And so Paul spends a lot of his time explaining to, the pe- to people, both Jews and Gentiles, why they must get along, why they can get along, and how to get along. So I think first we need to understand the problem. What is it that alienates people from God and from each other? What is it that the Bible describes that alienates us from God and from each other? Anybody? Sin. That's what I was going to say. Sin. So I thought, feel free to to jump back at me anytime. Um, But yeah, sin. Sin is what it is. But you know, it's one of those, we, we've talked a lot about this word sin, because it's a word our culture, I think, just finds, I mean, for one, like, do we really take that word seriously in our culture? I don't think so. We name perfumes sin, or we name, you know, we name our nightclub sin, or something like that. We don't really take it, like, the word too seriously, and I think it's because we don't actually understand what the word means. You hear in church all the time, you know, like, you're a sinner, or I'm a sinner, or everyone else out there is sinners, whatever. Like, we throw this word around sin, but it's important that we know what it is. So just really briefly, here's the problem. So it starts, Paul lays it out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses, you know, kind of 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Well, there's the problem. We're dead in our sins. And so we can't have right relationship with each other. We can't have a right relationship with God because something has happened. This thing called sin has gotten in the way and has, has destroyed. And the picture of sin in the Bible is that it always seeks to destroy. We tend to think of like, you know, sin is like, you know, the fun things to do and that God kind of wants to ruin our fun and take away our fun. And so he calls those things sin and we're not supposed to do them, right? You know, look, but don't touch or whatever, like all of these kinds of things. But the problem with sin is threefold. The first thing is the one that we talk about in church all the time, and that's this, that sin is breaking God's commands. It is, okay? First and foremost, it is. So the word hamartia, which is the fancy Greek word, wasn't fancy to them, I guess, but we don't speak Greek, hamartia. It means to miss the mark. So it's like this idea of like you're a marksman with a bow and arrow, you shoot at a target, and it goes like way right, which is what happens anytime I try and shoot a bow. I'm not a bow hunter, right? So, so like it's missing the mark, like just completely. It's not even like finding the target. It's like, you know, you're off like, you know, watch out for the people in the crowd. Like, you know, like, so it's, it's this idea of missing the mark. And sin is that. So God has a standard and he says, this is how you should live. And it's, it's the reality that none of us actually make it. We all miss 
the mark. It's, but I think another way that the Bible looks at the same kind of idea is by calling it rebellion. And it's not that like, oh, whoops, I missed, you know, I missed the target. It's, it's more like, I'm going to miss it on purpose. <laughs> I want to miss it because actually I'd rather hit this thing over there. Right? And so it's this idea of rebellion. And we see it in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. We see this picture. Sorry, Genesis chapter 3. That Adam and Eve essentially were giving God the middle finger. And just said, like, screw you. We know what's best and how to live our lives. And I think all of us, to one extent or another, have at some point in our lives essentially done the same thing. And said, do you know what, God? You say, but I think. Right? But instead, I'm going to do X, Y, you know, what, whatever, right? And it's that idea of saying, okay, God, I actually know what's better for my life than you do. And so it is a failure to live out our intended purpose that God has created us for and instead to think that we have a better purpose. Okay, and so that's, that's one way of looking at sin, Paul calls it falling short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 3. You and I were created to be image bearers of God. That's what Genesis chapter 2 says. We were created in the image and the likeness of God. That is who you and I are. And when we sin, it is a failure to actually live out what it means to be human. So when I come to Christ and I try and to, to kill my sin or I try to get rid of my sin, I'm not becoming less of myself. I'm actually becoming more of who I was created to be. I'm actually becoming more human. That's a biblical picture of sin. Okay, And that's generally, I think, the one we think of, but there's actually two more. One of them is a force, right? A force. So Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2.2. 2. He says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He recognizes what Paul recognizes, and I think, I think deep down we recognize this too, is that, man, there is more going on in this world than just like some people doing some bad things, right? Like you can look at like, I don't know, North Korea? And you can go like, that's not just like Kim Jong-un's like a bad guy. Like when I look at that, I go, there's something deeper going on. There is an evil going on there that like I can't explain. You know, when you, I mean, there are all throughout history, we can look at these points of just horrible, horrible things that have happened. And we can try and say, oh, it's just people being people. But I actually think there's more going on. And I think the Bible recognizes that as well. Paul recognizes that, that there is a force at play. And as human beings, we tend to cooperate with that force to one level or another. Do you know, maybe none of us, I, I doubt, will ever commit mass genocide. Okay, so, so we, you know, and that I think is a force of evil. But there's a lot of other things that we do in our lives every day where we're cooperating with the forces of, of evil in this world. I think that's just a reality, that there is a spiritual realm. And so, so the Bible talks about sin as a force. In Genesis 4, it talks about sin crouching at the door, and it wants to have you. First Peter, uh, Peter talks about sin like a lion, like Satan is like a lion who wants to eat you. Like, it's a force. And then you come to the most common way that we don't talk about, probably often enough, about sin, and that's idolatry. 
the most common way the Bible talks about sin is idolatry. And that's another word we kind of throw around but don't really know maybe all the time what it means. Essentially what it means is putting something else above God, anything that might be. Whether that's my family, whether that's my, my friends, whether that's, you know, having the nicest car or the best job, whether it's, you know, whether it's, yeah, my career or whether it's like, whether it's, I don't know, Buddha, whatever it might be, you know, maybe it is for you. Maybe it is an idol you keep on the shelf. But I know for me, when I look at my life, it's not, I don't have, you know, I don't have some weird statue that I pray to. But I've got other things in my life that sometimes I elevate higher than God idolatry. It's replacing God with anything. It's worshiping, as Paul says in Romans, worshiping the created rather than the creator. And so the Bible says that sin then leads to death, life apart from God. That's how the Bible views death. It's not just physical death. It's literally life separated from God. It's this idea of like exile, right? Okay. And that's a whole nother theme we could run through the Bible, but for the sake of all of us, I'm not going to do it at the moment. If you have more questions about the theme of exile, we can talk about it after church. Um, And I I would love to, you know, <clears throat> I'd love to explain that more. But let's just say sin leads to death, and death is life apart from God ultimately. It is life without God. Sin leads to alienation with God. I no longer have a relationship with my creator. I'm no longer, you know, connected to the person who gives me the identity that I was always created to have. And so ultimately when we sin and we alienate ourselves from God, what ends up happening inevitably is that it ruins relationships with other people. That right relationship that's supposed to be there with other people is no longer there. And that's sin. That's what sin does. It seeks to destroy and to tear apart and to ruin. And so this is the Bible, how the Bible defines the problem of why we can't just sit around and sing kumbaya all the time without Jesus. So what's the solution? And this is what Paul gives us, the solution to the problem is Jesus. The Sunday school answer here, Jesus. Salvation then, so here's here's the thing. The Bible lays out then that Jews and Gentiles, first and foremost, are fellow participants in the same promise. Okay, so he's going to lay out really three things. And this is the first one. The Jews and Gentiles are fellow participants of the same promise. The second thing he's going to lay out is that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same blessings. And that Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the same body. Put another way, you and I and everybody else who comes to Jesus participate in the same promises. That It is available for every single person in this world, this promises that God has made. And that the inheritance that Jesus has, the inheritance that King Jesus has on offer is for every single person in the world. And if you come to Christ, that blessing is yours. And that we have available to us the the ability to be a new society united under Jesus, fellow members of the same body. That is open to every person, irregardless of who you are or where you come from. That is open to everyone. And before we get too started, let me just say, like, that's one of the things I love about our church. It's full of people from all over the world. And I think that's cool. 
And I think that's exactly what God has in mind for his church, is a community of people that come together in the name of Jesus from all over the world, from every background, from every nation. So let's go. Sin, or sorry, the solution is that we are first and foremost fellow participants of the same promise. So what Paul lays out here is that salvation is for both. It's not through law following, but it's belonging to Christ Jesus. That that's how it works, that belonging to King Jesus, giving my allegiance, put another way, giving my allegiance to King Jesus is how we find, we participate in the promises of God. So for the Jews, it was through following the law. Following the law was how people, you know, how Jews before Jesus follow God. It was what God asked them to do, to follow the law. And why? Because when they followed the law, it would bring peace. It would bring peace with God, right? So the whole sacrificial system is all about how God and man can draw near to each other. We look at it and say, that is weird. But for people in the Old Testament, it was not weird. In fact, it was a great blessing because it allowed them to be able to draw near to God. Like that was what the law, that was what the sacrificial system was all about. So it brought peace between man and God, the law did. It brought peace between man between um, man and man, like person and person. Like it brought peace in between. So if you read the Old Testament laws and the way they were to treat people, the way they were to treat each other, like there's so many laws in there about the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat the foreigner, the way you treat the poor, the way you, you treat the orphan and the widow, like all of that is in there. Like this, this uh, peace between other people. And there's a peace between my, you know, with myself and how I view myself and understanding myself as, as belonging to God that, comes, that came through the law for the people, or it was supposed to. And there was a peace with creation. I mean, you can read about you know, like the laws for tending, you know, taking care of the earth. There were all kinds of law, farming laws and how they were to take care of their animals, all these kinds of things. There was a peace then that came with creation. And so the law, Paul says elsewhere, wasn't like a bad thing. The law is actually really good. But Jesus has come, and in, and in Matthew chapter 5, he says he's come to fulfill the law. He doesn't say he came to abolish it. He said he came to fulfill it. He says the law can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, there's actually this new society that's, that's been created. Now, it's not some new fangled religion that's completely different from the old. No. In fact, the, the metaphor the Bible uses is like a, a, a tree that's growing up, an olive tree that's growing up. And what's happened, you know, is like there's like been a hybrid created. Like, you know, he sliced off some branches and grafted in new branches to make like a a new hybrid tree. So is it still an olive tree? Yes. But is it different? Yes. So it's like this idea then that the church is connected to the Old Testament. We can't separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. They're interconnected. They work together. They show us what God is like, who God is. But it's different now this side of Jesus. And this was not something people saw coming. And that's what we need to understand. That's why this is a mystery, okay? The Jews looked forward to a day when, when a Messiah would come and, and the Jews would be God's chosen people that were high and lifted up and, you know, God is the king over all the earth. Um, 
The Psalms proclaim that all over the place. They look forward to this day. And even there, there's all these prophecies about the Gentiles coming and worshiping. So Isaiah chapter 2 talks about how the Gentiles would come and they would worship. Um, we, remember back at Christmas, we went through Micah. And in Micah, you have these prophecies that like the nations would come to Zion and worship God. And so, so it wasn't like they had this idea that like, oh, Gentiles couldn't be a part of things. They could be a part of things so long as they became Jews. That was the mindset. And if you read a lot of Paul's letters, particularly Galatians is a really good one for reading this, you start to see, if you look at it through this lens, that for the Jews, this is how they saw things, is that Gentiles could be a part of things so long as they became Jews, then it begin, you begin to understand why Paul has to write Galatians to say, no, that's not how it works, and to try and explain to them that there's a new way, a new and better way, and that the Jews don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow every single one of the laws, you know, and be ritually pure and all this, but Jesus has come and made a new way because it like mind blowing to the Jews. Like we, you know, in, in community group, we're going through uh, the book of Mark and Jesus keeps saying all this stuff and the disciples keep going, I don't get it. Like, you know, and, and we can look at them and be like, oh, they're so stupid. But we're looking at it this side of Jesus. For them, they're looking at it going, well, I've read the prophecies and that I'm not, I'm having a hard time connecting and it wasn't till the Holy Spirit came. It wasn't till Jesus spent time with them after he rose again, explaining the kingdom of God to them that all of a sudden they went, oh, okay, I get it. Now I see how the pieces come together like chili and chocolate, like mint and curry. I see how it comes together. I wouldn't have seen that before. But now that I've tasted and seen, oh, it's good. There's no going back. I will eat Reese's till the day I die. You know, like there's no going back. It's beautiful. Two things that shouldn't go together all of a sudden do, and it begins to make sense. So this is the mystery that is now revealed. Jesus has created for himself a new people. Not only that, then, the Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same blessing. Both the Jew and the Gentile share equally in the inheritance of God's people. And this is important to understand that there is not like first-class citizens and second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as a first-class Christian or a second-class Christian. And, and it's easy to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Like, let's think about ways sometimes that we treat other people, that we treat each other, or that happens. Like, guys, I, I know of a church in the States, um, they're, they're uniquely called First Christian Church, um, very original name, um, but they were telling me about another church in town called Second Christian Church. <laughs> Second Christian Church is the black church. First Christian Church is the white church. And guys, if that doesn't break your heart, you go, these are people from the same denomination. It's not even like they're disagreeing over the color of the carpet or when the end times are coming. Like, there's lots of stupid things to split about, but that is the dumbest. It is the most counter to the gospel that something like that has happened. 
And I understand that then like history starts to take its own course and things start to go a different direction. And maybe at this point it's more difficult to come together. But the fact that it ever happened is heartbreaking. And Paul's vision is like, no, no, it doesn't matter. We're all together in Christ Jesus. And is that always easy? No, it's not because it's full of people. The church is full of people. And we have different tastes in music. I loathe country music. For some of you, that's like your favorite thing in the world. Maybe. I don't know. Luke's not here. I know that's like... (laughs) But you know what? I can't imagine this church without Luke. Even if he got up here and sang country music on a Sunday morning, that's fine. If there's something about church... If if there's not anything about church that you don't like... Because that's a problem... Because it's full of people who are different. And there should be things that we don't like in church. It's just the reality. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. And I want that, you know, as somebody who's like a leader in the church, this is something, at least for me especially, because, you know, I'm planning things like music. I'm planning things like what I'm going to preach on. Like, I want to be mindful of that. So, guys, feel free to make me aware of these things. You know, like, I want our church to be for us and for the world, not just like for me and the things that I like. We're fellow heirs of the same blessing. Christ has brought peace with God and peace with one another. There is unity now with God and man because Jesus has brought peace. So I told you, we talked briefly there that like peace is like peace with God. Like that the law was meant to bring peace with God, peace with each other, peace with ourselves, peace with creation. But that's exactly what happens in Jesus in an even better way peace is brought. It is possible for us to have peace with God. That's exactly what Paul's laying out in Ephesians 2. He says, you were enemies. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Jesus, Jesus has made a way for you to come to God. You're now, we now have right relationship with God. We are in right standing with God because that is great news. And that great news makes possible this. I'm not saying we wouldn't all get along otherwise you know, reasonably well. But it's this that makes it possible. It's that being united in Christ that makes it possible that actually says, you know what? When we have even a big disagreement, we're going to be committed to work through it. We're not just going to say, see you later, I'm gone. Like, we're going to work through it. We're going to put in the time and the effort to be united in Christ. And that is a beautiful piece of the gospel. This shalom that the Bible talks about all over is possible in Jesus. Shalom, this idea of wholeness, completeness, the fullness of life. It is what we, what we were created for, what we long for deep down inside. And that is possible in Jesus. Real, lasting peace is possible. So to keep going... Not only are we fellow participants in the promise and fellow heirs of the same blessing, we're fellow members of the same body. And as I said before, this is one of Paul's main concerns in his letters. He understands the importance of this. And even there, he understands the uniqueness of what, of what the church is. I mean, what are their places like this? You know, when I think about 
the New Ireland, right? There's been a lot written on the New Ireland. Do you know Ireland for a very long time was a pretty homogenous place? Not to say there wasn't diversity, but it was a fairly homogenous place. But if you've lived here any amount of time, you know that's not the reality anymore. And so there are sociologists like Tom Inglis or, or Gladys Ganiel who, who are writing stuff, actually going like, how does the New Ireland actually work in practice? And then the reality is that it's actually, it's, I suppose, unsurprising probably to many of us, it's taking time. It's taking time to, for this to work out and to figure out what this new Ireland is going to be like. But guys, here's what I want to say to you. The world, the Ireland should be able to look at the church and go, that's what we want. That's the new Ireland we want. Look at those people. That's incredible the way they work together, the way they get along, the way they love each other, the way they care about one another. Guys, what if the church, what if people could look at the church and go, yeah, that, that right there, that's what the new Ireland should be like. Because I get excited about that vision. We have the opportunity to show people what it really looks like to have unity. Not just some superficial, like, we get along because we both like the same team, or we get along because we both like chili and chocolate, or we get along, you know, like, that it's like, no. Meaningful, impactful, deep, significant community. The church is to be a fellowship of difference. I didn't make this up. I wish I could take credit for that. I didn't make it up. The guy Scott McKnight who made that up, and I like totally stole it because it's, I think it's like a really good phrase for the church. That it's not a community of difference where we're just defined by our difference, but it is a community of difference. It recognizes that you and I are different, that the church is a place where we don't have to pretend like we're all exactly the same. We don't have to put up that, you know, that facade and pretend that you know, we're all the same. But what it means is we recognize the fact that we're all different, and that's okay. That we care about each other, that we love each other. That you know what? If I'm from, if I'm from a culture that just says it like it is, and there's somebody in church who's from a culture where you have to take a little, be a little more cautious about the way you approach things, then you know what? I care about you, and I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm not just going to tell you like it is. I'm going to take the time to try and talk to you on your terms. Selfless. Things like that, guys. And these are practical things that, that could very easily, we could run into in our church. The church is a fellowship. A group of people totally committed to being part of each other's life. We meet together. Just like last week, we eat together. Just like we're going to do here in a minute, we're going to sing together. And you know, one of the reasons that we do the sermon first and we have the songs after is because the songs aren't just to like ramp us up, so, you know, like hype music for me so I can get up and like, you know, throw bombs or whatever. No, like, I don't know who would actually say that, but that's like, you know, like... But you know what I mean? But like the, the music time is actually a time where together we declare allegiance to Jesus, who he is. We sing about what he has done. And, and you know what? We rejoice in the good news of the gospel. And so we're going to worship together. I know in our church sometimes we cry together, we laugh together. Maybe sometimes we argue together. <laughs> but ultimately we get along together because of Jesus. The church is a place filled with actual people who are seriously flawed, 
If you know me for very long, you know that's true, at least for me. Seriously flawed. But seeking to be like Jesus. And so within this reality, we have to learn how to show each other grace. And that's going to be important in all of this, is learning to show each other grace as we live in the mystery that in Christ, he is uniting all things. And so the church then is to call all of the world to be a part of God's kingdom. And that's all of the world to be a part of God's kingdom. In an increasingly fractured world that's divided by everything, the church functions as a beacon of hope that unity is possible, that community is possible. And in a world that's statistics would say is increasingly lonelier, that our world has actually never been lonelier, even though we're more connected than ever before, the church is a place where we can find real and deep and lasting community. Peacefully flourish together in love. Guys, if that's not like an incredible vision for what the church could be, what the church should be, then I haven't explained it well. Unbelievable, God's vision for the church. And so often we sell it short. It's like just like we get together, we listen to some guy say a bunch of things for a few minutes and it's kind of boring and then we sing some songs and maybe you hate singing so even that's a punishment and then like you go home and you've done your time. Or maybe you really like coming here. That, that's great. I, I love coming here. I look forward to it. But it's more than that. It's so much more. And so as the church, we proclaim through word, through our words and through what we do, the mystery that's now revealed in Christ. That in Jesus, under the lordship of King Jesus, all things are being brought together. Heaven, earth, people are all being brought together, Jews and Gentiles, under the lordship of Jesus. That in him, all things are working together and coming together. And so in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, but we're all one in Christ. And when the church embodies this truth, it shouts loudly of a better community and more importantly, of a better God.